Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last week, Jeff was joined by renowned constitutional scholar Akhil Amar to unveil Professor Amar's new book, The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution. I'm so excited about the learning that uh, we have ahead of us tonight and let us inspire ourselves for the constitutional conversation that we're about to share by reciting the National Constitution Center's mission statement. Here we go. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people on a non partisan basis. I mentioned that today's convening will be a constitutional conversation, and there's no one in America better to have a constitutional conversation with than my dear friend, my law school teacher, my mentor, and America's greatest constitutional teacher and historian, Akhil Amar. Akhil has written the words that made us, which I'm convinced is one of the most important constitutional histories of this generation and one that will inspire Americans for generations to come. It's a pathbreaking work. It's the first of three books that will transform our understanding of constitutional conversations. And I can't wait to share it with you. So Akhil, welcome. And thank you so much for joining here at the National Constitution Center. It's such an honor to be with you, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. We have so much to talk about, and I just want to begin with the question that you pose in the postscript. Uh, why this book and why now? Uh, well, why this book? Um, because uh, the book, uh, as you said, is the words that made us, uh, because uh, I'm very grateful to be an American, truth be told. I want to tell our audience uh, a story of an immigrant a family comes to the United States. Uh, my, that's my mother, my father, they actually weren't a family when they came. They came independently um, and met in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that's where I was born, um, a first generation born in the United States. And when I was 10 years old, they took me to Philadelphia. Um, and I, uh, and they took me to Independence Hall, uh, and I was inspired by the Chargers of Liberty. And then the next year, they took me to Washington, D.C., and the National Archives, and we saw um, the Parchment Declaration of Independence and the Parchment Constitution, Parchment Bill of Rights. And I think a lot about what it is that um, makes um, us all Americans. We came, our families came at different times, we Americans, um, from different places, uh, uh, descended from people who spoke different languages, um, professed different religions. So what is it that, that, that we have in common? What makes us us? What makes the U.S. the U.S.? I've been thinking about that since 10 years old um, when I came to Philadelphia. So that's the why this book, um, and maybe why now, because I think I finally figured it out 50 years later. Well, there's, uh, you certainly did figure it out. And I must share with our friends who are watching, I, I read the book with both a sense of growing wonder, and I ended up uh, being moved to tears by your act of 
constitutional resurrection and faith. You have reconstructed the texts of the constitutional debates at the center of the American Republic from 1760 to 1840, using the words of the people who participated in them. Um, and you told me that this book couldn't have been written five years ago because many of these texts were not online. I want you to tell our friends about what you were, how, how you were able to reconstruct these texts uh, now in a way that you couldn't have uh, five or 10 years ago, and then start them off just so they understand how exciting this is by describing why you chose to start the book in 1760 and what the constitutional debates that you're describing then are. So uh, this is really important for our audience. You can look at these things too, um, because they're amazing websites that are open to the public, like the National Constitution Center, in, um, uh, in the Interactive Constitution, which didn't exist 10 years ago, where you can go through the, the Constitution paragraph by paragraph, clause by clause, and, and read more about it. Um, so there's a website uh, put together by uh, the Library of Congress, and it's, uh, a lot of its documents are word searchable. The, uh, records of the Philadelphia Convention, Ferrand's records uh, at, uh, with Madison's notes at the center of those, um, Eliot's debates, which are um, ratification um, uh, convention is in the 13 states, and, and a lot of that's word searchable. There are 29 volumes of um, the documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution that's now online and word searchable. Twenty-nine thick volumes when you can you can read what the debate was in in Pennsylvania, in Virginia, in New York, in Massachusetts, to pick four of the the more important uh, states where people are are debating with each other. They're talking. They're listening. They're changing their minds. They're adjusting their positions. There's an amazing um, uh, database. Yesterday I did an event at the National Archives. It's called the National Archives. Uh, the, um, um, it's the um, the framer, uh, the, the founders online um, uh, project, um, and you can read every letter, word searchable, um, to and from the six great founders: Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, and Franklin. Um, and you can configure. You can you can put in letter from George Washington to. Alexander Hamilton, and they'll give you them chronologically. You can see the first letter that they wrote, or the first letter that Hamilton wrote um, Madison, which is all about actually something interesting that happened in Philadelphia in the in the early 1780s. It's all word searchable. You can do all of that. And here's one that's amazing. Um, this one, all those are, are free. This other one uh, sits behind a, a paywall. It's um, America's historical newspapers. Um, you can actually call up a facsimile print and, and it's pretty, and the word search capability is pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good for almost, almost any newspaper in almost any American city, almost any day. And you can see basically um, for yourself what it is that people were talking about. So, so if I've been able to, to do something now that I didn't do before, it was in large part because um, this society has created um, these amazing um, interactive online, largely free tools for us all. Now, you asked also about 1760. Um, so almost every book that you'd read about the American Revolution 
uh, and the run up to it um, would begin with the imperial debate between Britain and her American colonies. And the story would start in 1763. So there are probably 50 books or 100 books in their subtitle, 1763 to 1776. Um, but um, I came to think that actually the story began even earlier, it begins in 1760, 61 in Boston. And so, so act one, scene one for me, if you're a movie fan, this would be the first time Harry met Sally. Um, and I've got three people in a room for the first time. They're all Harvard graduates. Um, one is named Thomas Hutchinson. He's the chief judge of the province. He's gonna go on to become the governor of the province, royally appointed. He's, he's American born, Boston born. Um, he's the most prominent Boston-born person, basically, and the most and the brainiest of his generation, um, uh, alongside Ben Franklin. Um, he's going to become the most significant loyalist in America. Um, that is someone who stays loyal to to the king. And those are interesting people. And almost ne none of our audience has probably heard of Thomas Hutchinson, even though he's a significant figure. And as late as 1773, if you had to guess who was gonna stay loyal to the crown and who was gonna be a rabble-rousing revolutionary as between Ben Franklin and, and Thomas Hutchinson, you'd have to flip a coin. It's not so clear who. So I got Thomas Hutchinson and then I got a rabble-rousing a, a, a lawyer, um, more, um, an early rabble-rouser, more significant actually or earlier in the story than Patrick Henry in Virginia, than Thomas Jefferson in Virginia. I'm not sure if your audience knows his name. His name is James Otis. And he actually says some of these parliamentary um, uh, uh, laws, um, even as early as 1760-61, are unconstitutional, whatever that means, and therefore null and void. A few years later, he's going to coin the phrase taxation without representation is tyranny. He's going to write leading pamphlets against the Stamp Act, um, um, which is a set of taxes that the British start imposing later in the story. So that's why m most stories begin 1763, 64, 65, with the end of a global war, the Seven Years' War, with the Treaty of Peace in Paris, and the taxes that the British have to pay to, to uh, have to impose to pay for this war. They've won Canada from um, France. Hooray, they got, but they are deeply in debt. Who should pay? They think the Americans, because the Americans are benefiting from all of this. So most stories begin 1763 with the Stamp Act, um, tax, um, and Otis is going to be a leader um, uh, uh, against uh, these Stamp Acts. He's going to be the driving force for a thing called the Stamp Act Congress, where Americans up and down the continent get into the uh, are in a room. Um, but but the story between the bad blood between Otis and Hutchinson actually begins in 1760 to 61. And because Otis, the rabble rouser, riles people up against Thomas Hutchinson, there's a massive riot. In 1765, and Hutchinson's house, which is the nicest house in Boston, is actually destroyed. It's it's the one of the worst moments of of mass violence in the entire American Revolution. But you can't understand that if you start in 1763. You got to go back to 1760. Oh, and I got a third guy, also a Harvard graduate. No one's ever heard of him before this moment. He's 25 years old. He's a he's just a, a lawyer scribbling down the notes of this really interesting. To, um, uh, a judicial hearing about the thing called writs of assistance, which are about the, pri uh, uh, the right of people to be um, secure in their in their houses. A man's house is his castle. His name, he's, he's a nobody at the time, but he writes down notes of this really interesting judicial proceeding about a thing called 
writs of assistance, which are going to eventually become our Fourth Amendment uh, conversation. And his name is John Adams. So I got Adams, Otis, and Hutchinson all in the uh, room together for the first time. And 50 years later, Adams says, that's when independence really starts. It turns out he's partly right, partly wrong. But to find out why and how, you got to read chapter one. You got to get through the entirety of chapter one. If you start reading chapter one of this book, You'll at first think like, why is he? Why is the author telling me this and that and the other thing? It's very, you know, detailed. But by the time you get to the end of chapter one, you'll have a completely different way of thinking about the American Revolution. You really do, and that episode is so telling because it bears such uh, fruit in future chapters. So we learn from that, from your telling, the difference between legitimate and illegitimate crowd actions or mobs. You say that the Boston Tea Party was proportionate, nonviolent, and playful and theatrical, while the attack on Thomas Hutchison's house destroyed his papers and his private property and was an example of illegitimate mob violence. And similarly, you teach us in this episode the importance of close attention to legal arguments. Friends who are listening, it was one of the greatest privileges of my life to study constitutional law with Akhil Amar when we were both starting off many, many years ago. And Akhil, tell us about, uh, as you do in the book, the difference between general warrants and writs of assistance, why uh, writs of assistance were less uh, threatening in some circumstances than general warrants. And, and, and then I, I uh, help our friends understand how is it possible that these debates, which took place largely in newspapers and among uh, literate citizens, were able to be conducted with such legal and technical precision? So um, first, let me tell you just a little bit about the writs of assistance. Um, a writ of assistance, um, a writ's a piece of paper. And... Uh, these pieces of paper authorized government officials to go into any place they wanted, including a private home, to, to break down the door if needed, to get the assistance, um, the help of, 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 of surrounding folk. They could actually commandeer um, uh, public officials or even just passersby, private people, the constable, in effect, that serving a customs house officer with this piece of paper, say, I command you to help me break down this door looking for smuggled goods, goods in which the Bostonians hadn't paid um, the taxes um, on um, that were being imposed. Now, this was a threat to everyone's home, everyone's privacy. And so Otis thunders against it. And there are a lot of smugglers in Boston. Um, and a lot of, and so Boston is a big smuggling town, truth be told. The Bostonians, um, it's a way of life for them, but the British need to collect revenue. And so they got to crack down on smuggling. And so if you've got smuggled goods in your home, this writ of assistance is going to authorize an intrusion into the home. Um, now, um, uh, in England, writs of assistance actually um, were valid. And many of the people who actually support the American revolutionaries believed in writs of assistance. People like um, William Pitt, the great Lord Camden, even as they, those very same people said, oh, general warrants, which look very similar. They are sweeping authority of government officials to basically snoop anywhere. General warrants were apparently okay. Writs of assistance, I mean, general warrants, you see me, were not okay. Writs of assistance were okay. And that's what Hutchinson decides for these five judges on the highest provincial court 
in Massachusetts. They said, well, we've re we, we, we wrote legal authorities back in, in London for guidance, and they told us that these are okay. So what makes these writs okay, whereas general warrants, which look almost identical, are not okay? And it's a technical little issue. And Otis missed it, but, but, but law sometimes turns on really technical issues. Here's the key. If government officials intrude upon you, you can sue them. And the risks of assistance said, if they broke into your house and didn't find anything, if you were innocent, you can sue for damages. A jury of your peers can sock it to the government official. Um, and so even today, for example, we, have these we are having conversations about whether people should be allowed to sue police officers who misbehave or whether these officers should have immunity. Well, that turns out was the same issue as in the risk of assistance, because the risk of assistance um, didn't give very much immunity. These general warrants gave government officials a lot more immunity, even if they, they had no reason to search, they found nothing at all, they just wanted to hassle someone because of that person's race or religion or politics or um, what have you. The, the general warrants allowed officials to do that, but the risk of assistance didn't. Yes, they were issued by a government official um, um, uh, um, without a jury in the room. But if the, uh, if, the, uh, if the customs house guy doesn't find anything in your house after breaking into it, you can sue and a jury will give that person massive damages. Now, so that's, that's a technical legal issue, but so much of, of um, the constitutional law sometimes turns on fine points. Um, you mentioned um, the, uh, mob action. Yes, the differences between this riot at, involving Hutchinson's mansion in 1765 and the Tea Party, because you know, these are the same debates we're having today. Um, what kinds of mob action or crowd action are permissible? What, where, what goes too far? And, and I very carefully show you, well, some actions um, were peaceful and Proportionate and, and they and they weren't violent um, and um, and um, they um, were responding to um, a severe injustice and they were no more aggressive than they than they needed to be. In all of that, I was building. I want to tell your your our audience on the work of great scholars who came before me, including Pauline Mayer, the late Pauline Mayer. She was one of the historians who helped found. The National Constitution Center. Um, I actually, you know, was at her side when 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 she did a lot of that, and and she wrote a great book called From Resistance to Revolution. And actually, chapter two of my book is called Resistance, and chapter and and um and the whole section is called Revolution. Um, and that was an homage to the great Pauline Mayer. Um, but but these are the same things we're talking about today. When does government search and seizure policy go too far? What's the role of the jury? Should there be qualified immunity? When does mass action, when is it legitimate? A kind of First Amendment peaceable assembly? Um, um, when is it um, uh, ugly and violent and should be condemned? Like, say, I, I would say that the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Yes, it's remarkable. I read each chapter of this of this wonderful book, struck by the modern resonances and moved by the fact that you're um, revealing details of debates that had been ignored by historians who didn't know the 
law by lawyers who weren't deeply attentive enough to the history and by allowing these uh, ordinary men and women and also founders to speak in their own words, you are reminding us of the centrality of text and also of the communications technologies that spread them. I have to ask you, Akil, whether you, you often compare the newspaper debates of the founding era to modern social media technology, you talk about retweets and doxes and you show memes that are moving and but it's of course impossible to contrast the rigor and depth of these founding error debates and their legal precision with our debate by tweet and the polarized um, simplicity of uh, quick um, filter bubbles and echo chambers. So do you uh, what was different then that allowed, ordinary citizens to slowly deliberate, to read um, not endless, but serious essays like the Federalist Papers in the newspapers um, and debate. And I'll just take one of the many examples, one of the biggest questions that you talk about, who is sovereign? We the people of the United States or we the people of the individual states in a way that you think there was a right answer that really the convention following Wilson decided for the sovereignty of the national people. This debate is played out over uh, debates about who should be admitted uh, to the union and when, uh, Supreme Court uh, cases um, uh, uh, written by James Wilson himself. But but throughout it all, there, there's, uh, it, it, there's an extensive debate on all media platforms. Why, why was it possible then and not now? And maybe use the sovereignty case as an example. Yeah, and sovereignty is going to, in the end, be the nub of uh, the Civil War nullification and secession. If, if states really are sovereign, why can't they choose to leave, uh, pull a Brexit? Um, and I believe they can't, and I try to show you that. I try to show you how you can even see that literally in cartoons, in Join or Die, the world's first global meme uh, originating in 1754 initially in Philadelphia by good old Ben Franklin, who was there with the Declaration of Independence and, and there in the Constitution. And, and he's a newspaper man. He's a printer. And that join or die meme is um, in different incarnations, it, it, which is because if, 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 if you have to join or die, well, then there can't be unilateral secession. Once you're in, you're in. The snake has to be um, um, uh, one whole. Um, I show you a different set of images that had emerged. There were reasons the snake didn't quite make a, um, a, a revival um, in the 1780s, um, but other um, cartoons did because it's a democratic culture and, and they're, they're trying to make simple but powerful arguments. You can see, I believe, you the reader, we've got lots of images in the book, the unconstitutionality of unilateral secession, literally by looking at certain cartoons and thinking carefully about the logic of the cartoon, about the picture. Now, um, it is true, I think, that um, their constitution was remarkably sophisticated, and sometimes I'm really frustrated that today it's, um, um, it's, it's not very uh, um, uh, careful um, uh, tweets. So here's one thing that is uh, possibly a difference. Um, I see it in my own students. Uh, Jeff, Jeff really, I, 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 Jeff was one of my best students ever. I fell in love with him. I fell in love with another student a few years later, uh, named Neil Katyal, and and I introduced Jeff to Neil, and 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 Neil later married Jeff's sister. So, um, but but Jeff, I always marveled. At, here's something that you and Neil have in common: you're great readers, and you read 
books and not just um, short things. My students today don't like reading long form stuff. They have a shorter attention span. Um, so I told you um, how the internet is amazing. You can find all sorts of stuff, do quick word searches, but I think it's shortened our cultural attention span in ways that are unfortunate. Rem theirs was a highly literate society, at least among whites, males as well, uh, females as well as males. So I'm going to uh, bracket the slavery issue, but among um, free whites, working class to upper class, literacy rates are remarkably high. There's more newspaper consumption uh, and production per capita in America, let's say by 1790, than any place in the world, including Britain. And why is that? Well, one hypothesis might be because everyone needs to read because they need to read the Bible. It's a pretty Protestant nation. Um, that one core idea of Protestantism is sola scriptura. You have to read the scripture um, for yourself. It can't be that you can't just rely on a priest telling you what it means. It has to be in a vernacular language, so not just in, in Latin. You have Gutenberg publishing a Bible in the vernacular. So Gutenberg and Luther are actually creating a certain um, revolution in which people. Um, and, and, and if you're going to read the Bible, that's a long book. Um, or if you're going to go to Sunday, if you're going to go to church every Sunday, you're going to hear a sermon about a long, a slightly longer passage of text. Um, and, and, and then you're going to go every week and, and hear more elaborations of, of text. Um, so you're going to have someone like Jonathan Edwards giving famous sermons, um, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, Jonathan Edwards, um, um, grandson is president of Princeton University. He was actually a uh, Princeton, um, 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 uh, and I, 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 um, his son-in-law son was the grandson's Aaron Burr, excuse me, um, the, um, of, of the Who Shot Hamilton fame. So one hypothesis is they were book readers more than maybe the current generation. And, and I want us to get back into book reading. Um, and, and I apologize. This is, this is a pretty big book. It, it'll take you a few weeks to go through. Um, but if this is what we Americans have in common, you, you know, um, uh, uh, liberal and conservative, uh, Democrat and, and Republican, coastal people, um, uh, heartland people, people whose families came to the United States recently, people whose family came to the United States in slave ships. If, if what we have in common is this, then I think it's worth it to read one book, even if it's a big one, that really tries to give you the deep background of what it is that we have. Because if we don't have anything in common, we're doomed. We're Beirut. Um, and that's what, that's why the National Constitution Center is so important and, and truthfully why I'm so Proud. One of the proudest moments of my life was helping to found the National Constitution Center way back when, because when I came to Philadelphia at 10 years old, I was so inspired by Independence Hall. Akil, when you said that your students today are not uh, reading uh, long books, I have to say that that uh, brought, a, brought a tear to my eyes because you, your brilliant students at, at Yale Law School, if they, with all of the educational advantages in the world, um, are not able to take the time to read complicated text, then how can we expect our far less uh, privileged um, fellow citizens to make this effort? But it is urgently important. And reading this book, which is long, but each page uh, rewards close reading, convinced me more than ever of the 
um, importance of listening to complicated arguments on both sides of a constitutional issue because you believe that there are often are right and wrong answers. And I want to give as an example for our friends, George Washington, who is one of the heroes of your book. You have uh, you conclude that Washington uh, and Hamilton were far greater ultimately uh, constitutionalists than uh, even Jefferson and Adams. And Washington was great, you say, because he listened to arguments on both sides and he listened to his fellow citizens. He was a reader, you call him, and a listener, uh, although not a not a journalist like uh, Hamilton and, and uh, Madison and the others. And um, when it comes time to s- decide whether or not to sign a bill chartering a national bank, he asks it to his two advisors, uh, Hamilton and then uh, Madison on the other uh, side to, to give their opinions and ultimately sides with Hamilton. And then Hamilton's uh, wisdom is vindicated in a brief he writes to the Marshall Court and upheld by Chief Justice Marshall. So tell our friends what the arguments on both sides were, why they persuaded Washington and how they were inscribed uh, into the U.S. reports by John Marshall. So most of us were taught that Madison is the father of the Constitution, and that's not the story that I tell. I say it's George Washington. Overwhelmingly, that's why George Washington unanimously is picked to preside at the Philadelphia Convention. Um, uh, He uniquely gets everything that he wants at Philadelphia. Uh, Madison loses on most of the things that 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 he cares about that are distinctive. That's why Washington is unanimously elected president. Every elector votes for him in the first meeting of the Electoral College, he's unanimously reelected. He towers over everything. Um, uh, and um, so uh, for the first year, um, his team, um, he has Jefferson on his left um, and Hamilton on his right in his cabinet. Um, and uh, James Madison is his point person in Congress, putting his agenda through. So imagine Joe Biden. So he's got this agenda. So he's got Nancy Pelosi pushing it in the House and, and Chuck Schumer in the Senate. Well, Washington has um, James Madison pushing his agenda, and he's got his cabinet officials, um, someone on the left, so to speak, Jefferson, someone on the right, Hamilton. And for the first year, everything goes fine. And then a national bank is proposed, Hamilton drafts the bank bill, and in the House of Representatives, Madison not only opposes it, but says it's unconstitutional. Um, And then it reaches Washington, but but Madison loses in the House and Senate, so the bill is now on Washington's desk. He is supposed to take constitutional law seriously. He's not supposed to say, well, let the courts figure that out. If it's unconstitutional, he's supposed to veto that bill, and he has constitutional obligations. Courts aren't the only ones who are supposed to take constitutional law seriously. And, and Madison was trying to take it seriously in the House, arguing we have to vote against this bill because it's unconstitutional. This is what is sometimes called today departmentalism. Each of the departments, the legislature, House and Senate, um, the, the president, as well as the courts, judge and jury, have to take constitutionalism seriously. So the bill is on Washington's desk. He's got 10 days to decide. Jefferson writes... Um, and, um, a, a, um, a memo to Washington saying it's unconstitutional. He's Secretary of State. Um, Jefferson's um, a cousin, Edmund Randolph, also writes, um, who's the Attorney General, writes um, Washington a memo saying it's unconstitutional. Madison said the same thing. Now Washington is getting a little worried here. 
So he says to Alexander Hamilton, you drafted this bill. You got to convince me that this is constitutional. And I'm with Hamilton all the way. Hamilton writes a brilliant memo. I try to look at his arguments and, and compare them to Jefferson's and Madison's. And here you see Washington is the listener in chief. He's brought people on all sides together. Um, he makes he asks them to give them their best arguments. He then carefully sifts them and he signs his name on it. And eventually the Supreme Court will unanimously agree with Washington in a landmark opinion called McCulloch versus Maryland in 1819 by John Marshall. This is 30 years later on a court, two of whose members were put on the court by Madison, three of whose members I think were put on the court by Jefferson. Um, so maybe I got the two and the three mixed up, but, but five of the seven were actually put on by Jefferson and Madison and the court unanimously sides with Hamilton. Madison himself will sign a new bank bill into law after having argued in 1791, it was unconstitutional. Why do I side with the later Madison over the earlier Madison? Why do I side with Hamilton? It's actually pretty simple when you step back. Why do I side with, with Washington? Because I do think there's a right answer. And it's an answer that Madison eventually found, even after having argued the other side, that Washington understood early on, Hamilton most of all, and that the unanimous Supreme Court accepted. Simple. Um, once you understand the entire backstory of the American Constitution, what you need to understand, and I, in my earlier books didn't start early enough. I ha you have to start in 1760, and you have to get up to the American Revolution, and then you have to go through the Revolutionary War. Why is Washington preeminent? Because without him, there'd be no America because you would have, he, he's the person who holds America together and wins the war and then walks away from power rather than trying to make himself king using his army. So everyone can trust him, but you can't be America unless you can beat the British. And you beat them once, but it was a close run thing. Um, uh, it was a triple bank shot and you need to be able to beat them again if they try to come, come back. So the core purpose of the Constitution, I argue, was national security. Um, that 13 had to join together, join or die. If the colonies don't join together, they can't present a common front militarily against the, the, the English, the British, or for that matter, the, the French or the Spanish. They have to form a perfect union on the model of the Union of Scotland and England in 1707. That's where that language comes from. England is an island nation and that's why it's defensible. And, um, uh, and America in effect has to be an island nation. Um, the Atlantic Ocean will be our English channel. That's the argument of George Washington. It goes all the way back to Ben Franklin, join or die. Um, uh, and uh, so point one, the constitution was created for national security. The Articles of Confederation tried to do it. It didn't work so well. Three times the Articles of Confederation used the word common defense. That's the core purpose of the Constitution is common defense and forming a more, more perfect union for common defense in order to secure the blessings of liberty. It all fits together. Um, perfect union will facilitate common defense, which will protect liberty because um, the British won't kill us. Um, and we won't need a big army ourselves because we don't have um, uh, international borders between uh, Virginia and, and, and Maryland or Maryland and Pennsylvania. We're going to have a, a largely demilitarized continent if we can join together. Point one, we have a constitution for national security. Point two, and this is what Madison doesn't understand because Madison doesn't understand banks. 
Banks are very useful, national bank, to win wars. That's why Britain beat France, because Britain had a better credit structure. You need to, to you, uh, get the resources of your economy to mobilize to win wars. You have to pay troops on site and on time, otherwise you're dead. They're dead. Washington was there at Valley Forge. Hamilton was there at Valley Forge. Marshall was there at Valley Forge. Madison and Jefferson weren't. They don't get it. So point one, you need um, the Constitution was for national security. Point two, banks are really useful to help the troops get money and material to the troops when they need it and where they need it. And step three, pretty darn useful is good enough for government work. If that's the core reason that ordinary people voted for the Constitution, and by this point in the book, I've shown you that's why people vote for the Constitution, for national security reasons, not because of an essay that our readers, our audience have read, Federalist Number 10, which is written by Madison. That's a t there's a series of newspaper essays. Would you wait to your 10th op-ed to make the argument about why you need an indivisible union? You'd make it earlier, and it is made earlier, and Hamilton makes it, and it's all about common defense, about how we have to be like England, uh, uh, I'm saying like Britain, a union of Scotland and England. If that's what it's all about, common defense, then um, uh, a national security, that's why ordinary people vote for the Constitution. So a simple three-step argument. Um, the Constitution was adopted for national security. A bank is pretty darn useful for that. And pretty darn useful is good enough for government work for a document designed for ordinary people. That's what they voted for, um, common defense, and a bank really is what they voted for. And that's why Hamilton was right and Madison was wrong until he changed his mind and joined Hamilton. And the Supreme Court unanimously agreed. And I go, the book goes all the way to Andrew Jackson's period. Your audience might say, oh, well, Professor, but later on, Jackson vetoes a bank bill, a new, yet another bank bill, and he does so on constitutional grounds. Yes, yes, yes. But he never says that a bank is completely and categorically unconstitutional. He never goes back to the Jefferson position, to the Randolph position, to the Madison position. He says there are certain specific details about this bank bill that make it unconstitutional. But I have no doubt, says Jackson in his veto message, that we can come up with a federal bank, a national bank, that's fully within Congress's um, uh, uh, competent, uh, Congress's powers under the Constitution, that fully can. Um, um, uh, can accommodate states' rights. There's one large topic where you think that Madison and Jefferson got it uh, right, and that is free speech. And your account of Madison's uh, response to the Sedition Acts championed by President Adams in the Virginia Resolution uh, taught me so much, uh, including the fact that he and Jefferson made it to the Virginia and Kentucky legislatures, because legislatures has special protection for speech, jumping off of the idea of par parliament, parlement, the, the speaking body. Um, but they rooted that protection in the need for free examination of public characters that they thought was necessary for Republican government, a point reinforced by your entire thesis that conversation circles among ordinary citizens and their representatives were at the core of the framers' conception of republicanism. So, so tell and but you think you say Jefferson got it wrong because he was rooting it in uh, state sovereignty in the Kentucky Resolution. So the the details are so exciting and important. Tell our friends about that debate and why you think that Madison and Jefferson got free speech right. 
because speech, free speech, free discourse is the absolute indispensable sine qua non of democracy. You need really two things, reg votes, regular votes, fair votes, and, and speech, voices. And you can't, and democracy doesn't work if you don't have votes, obviously, but it also doesn't work if you don't have free speech. If people are not allowed to say, um, I oppose the government, they're doing, uh, the, the, our incumbents are, are, are doing bad things. So um, John Adams doesn't get it. He was, remember, not there for the Constitution. He was off in, in Europe at the time. So he's like Rip Van Winkle. He misses some things. He's the only president of our early presidents to be thrown out of office on, on his butt. Uh, Washington is reelected and then leaves voluntarily as the first president. Um, Adams is thrown out of office after four years. Jefferson um, wins and is re after championing free speech and is reelected and then walks away. Madison wins fair and square, is reelected fair and square, and walks away. Monroe wins, um, uh, uh, is reelected almost unanimously, and walks away. So why, I ask, again, when I open up the time frame, I sort of see more interesting questions. When I start a little bit earlier, why did Britain lose? Because King George didn't listen to Americans. He didn't read American newspapers. Um, he, he couldn't be bothered to hear what his subjects actually thought. And that's why he loses America. Um, and George Washington is absolutely, because um, I begin the story when everyone loves George, that is George III. In 1760, that's why, I be, another reason I begin, Act 1, Scene 1, everyone thinks the new king is great, and 15 years later, they're going to take up arms against him. Why? Because he's not listening to them. Um, George Washington saw all of that. And so he, when he became president, said, I'm not going to shut down free speech. I'm going to let people criticize me. I don't like it. Who likes being criticized? But I have to let people do that. John Adams is too thin-skinned. And so he's the only president who's tossed out. And he's tossed out because he signs his name to a bill that makes it a crime to criticize the president. And you can't do that. And not only does he sign his name to the bill, remember, he shouldn't. On departmentalist grounds, if it's unconstitutional, he should veto it. But he didn't. But it's not just that he doesn't veto it. He enforces it with extreme vigor, enthusiasm. He never pardons anyone who's convicted by it. And when you actually see the cases, which I show the reader, they're utterly trivial, just criticize, criticisms of government officials, the sort of thing that we see every day of the week today against, say, President Biden. Um, the, the analogy that I make is it's as if today a Republican president tried to actually close down the Washington Post or a Democratic president tried to um, uh, uh, throw in prison the, the editors um, and publishers of the National Review or the Wall Street Journal. You can't do that. And that's what Adams did. So he understood many things, but he didn't understand maybe the biggest thing of all, the absolute essential nature of freedom of speech. Jefferson understood it better Madison understood it best of all. So I told you, Madison doesn't understand banks, and on that he loses. Um, Adams doesn't understand free speech, and on that he loses. So the American people, it's interesting, they're wiser than, than even Madison, because Madison is one for two on this. He, he gets banks wrong and speech right, okay, and 
Um, and Hamilton is, is, is he gets Banks right, but he's not so great on speech. The American people are two for two. They they side with Madison with Hamilton, which he's right on national security and and Banks, which don't threaten liberty really. And they side ultimately with Madison on free speech, and they throw John Adams out of office because he actually is imprisoning critics and. Thomas Jefferson sweeps in and pardons everyone who's been convicted under this law, and he doesn't prosecute his own enemies. And again, because I am a right answer person, and on the 14th anniversary of the death of Adams and Jefferson, they die on the same day, on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1826, very famously, and 14 years later to the day, July 4th, 1840, my book ends in 1840, on the 14th anniversary of the deaths of Adams and Jefferson, who were there at the Declaration and died together, ran against each other twice. In 1840, July 4th, Congress passes a law paying back the fines to the people who were convicted under the Sedition Act, and in the accompanying report saying, it's clear beyond doubt that that act we now say is unconstitutional, and everyone admits that today after the partisan um, uh, intensity of the moment died down. Just like I'm hoping, truthfully, that there will come a moment when everyone will say, oh, the storm of the Capitol, that was wrong. Um, and oh, actually, in, in the partisan moment, people don't want to admit, you see, that, that certain things are true. Um, but with the benefit of, of, uh, of, of the passage of time, so, yes, I'm a right answer person, and, and, and American uh, Congress in 1840 passed this landmark law saying um, Madison was right on free speech and Jefferson, and in my lifetime, um, Jeff, maybe yours, I can't remember exactly your, your precise birth date, but um, New York Times versus Sullivan, the, the Supreme Court sides with Jeff, uh, with Madison and all of that and saying the Sedition Act was clearly and utterly con unconstitutional. It's been so held by the court of history. That's language from New York Times versus Sullivan. There's one great issue, of course, where you think that the convention got it wrong, and that is slavery. And you say that although many of the individual founders recognize the incompatibility of slavery with natural law and principles of justice, yet the, con the convention made a terrible error in not setting an end date for slavery, whether it was gradual extinction or abolition or not, you say it should have set a date, 1808 or 1876, but it didn't do that. And as a result, the Civil, the, the civil War came. You end the book by, in your adieu, by noting that your great characters had very different records on uh, their own views toward enslaved people. Uh, Franklin wrote a petition uh, to uh, Congress to end slavery, Washington freed his own enslaved people. By contrast, you say Jefferson and Madison, who you admire less constitutionally, chose not to free their own uh, enslaved people. Um, what can you say about the relationship between those four men's um, attitude toward their own uh, enslaved people or toward slavery and their constitutional positions? So I wanna talk about two things because the book talks about two things. Uh, the Constitution itself, and then some of the, the, the leaders who, who helped generate the Constitution. This is a book about a document and a book about people. So here's my big point about the document. The document 
when it began was better than almost anything else around. They put the thing to a vote. Wow. They forgot a bill of rights, but immediately ordinary people in the ratification process said, you forgot a bill of rights, let's add one. Wow. That um, addition affirms speech, press, petition, and assembly, and other things. Wow. Um, the Declaration of Independence wasn't put to a vote. Um, uh, none of the state constitutions of 1776 was put to a vote. So it was really impressive. But they made one huge mistake. They didn't actually put slavery on a path of ultimate extinction. And many states were putting slavery on a path of ultimate extinction. The Constitution was at its best when it listens to what states were already doing. States were laboratories of experimentation, and at its best, it wasn't the mind of James Madison. It was all of them looking at what the states did at their best. A later um, a jurist that Jeff adores, he's written a book about him, Louis Brandeis, talks about states as laboratories of experimentation. And at, at its best, the Constitution saw that. It, it, states had written constitutions. They had bicameral legislatures. Um, the states' uh, uh, constitutions beginning in 1776, written constitutions, bicameral legislatures, a tripartite system of government, uh, separate bills of rights in the best states. Um, um, so the U.S. Constitution is building on state practice. The best states were getting rid of slavery. Um, Otis said slavery was wrong. I told you about James Otis, and in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, there's language saying everyone's born free and equal, and in 1783, that's used as the basis to get rid of slavery in Massachusetts, and New Hampshire gets rid of slavery, and Connecticut and Rhode Island passed bills for gradual abolition of slavery, not just freeing slaves, getting ending slavery, which, see, the ancient world had slavery, and almost all societies had slavery, and, and, and an idea of freeing individual slaves, like Ben-Hur or in the Bible, individual slaves were freed. But the idea of ending slavery as a whole, abolition, that's an idea that Americans um, come up with. It's born in Philadelphia in 1775, the world's first abolition society. And Pennsylvania in, in, in 1780 passes a law providing for gradual ending of slavery. So Pennsylvania is doing it. And Rhode Island and Connecticut are doing it. And New Hampshire and Massachusetts are doing it. And soon, and New York and, and New Jersey will follow suit. But the federal constitution didn't do that. That was its big mistake. It didn't put slavery on a path of ultimate extinction because the British could basically threaten American liberty and the project, but so can slavery. If you, don't, if you don't end it, it will be the cancer that kills America. And the framers didn't quite see it. So one point I'm going to say. I'm going to tell you, and, and they didn't perfectly foresee the future. We, we today can't perfectly foresee the future. They got so many things right. They got this one thing wrong. It was a pretty big thing to get wrong. And you're going to have to, it's going to lead to a civil war. Um, and that's going to be the story I tell in the next volume when I start in 1840 and go all the way the next 80 years to 1920. That's going to be called The Words That Made Us Equal, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And then I'll have another book, The Words That Made Us Modern, taking the story from 1920 to 2000. So here's my point about text. The text, when you look at it as a whole, is getting better. Okay, it was imperfect, but we add a Bill of Rights. It's better than what came before. We add a Bill of Rights. That's better. Eventually, we're going to get rid of slavery and, and, and provide equality and fundamental rights in the Reconstruction Project, the second founding after the Civil War. Women are going to get the vote, um, get rid of poll tax disfranchisement. The text is getting better. This is interesting. Now that's the point about the text.
Now about human beings. Are human beings getting better or worse? And, um, and we've all made mistakes in our life and we can't change the past, but what we can do, and this is, Jeff and I, we're friends, we often talk about like the meaning of life when we, when, when we talk. So we, we try to be better going forward. And the last chapter of the book, I tell the story of the founders and, and, and how they end their lives. And Franklin gets better. He owned slaves early on, and he ends as an abolitionist, urging Congress to try to put slavery on the path of ultimate extinction. It's his last great gift to America, his parting words. Washington, he was a pretty thoughtless slaveholder, um, you know, not gratuitously cruel, but but very harsh, actually, as uh, the standards of the time. But he, as he ages, he gets better on this and he realizes that slavery is wrong and he should do something to try to make a statement. And in his, um, on his deathbed and his last will and testament, he provides for the freeing of his own slaves as a, as a quiet, um, a lesson to his fellow Americans. So Franklin gets better. Washington gets better. The story that I tell, alas, is that Madison and Jefferson get worse. They start out very idealistically opposed to slavery. That's prohibit slavery in the West. Um, Jefferson is the author of an early version of the Northwest Ordinance, which will end slavery, pro prohibit slavery in the West. That's how he begins. But he co-founds a political, in order to beat Adams, he needs to create a political party. The political party is based in the South and they've made, and, and, and Madison is his partner and they make their political bed and oh, they lie in it. And their, that political bed is a southern, is a pro-slavery party. And by 1820, they're opposing um, pr prohibitions of slavery in the West. They're saying, well, we should send our slaves to the West. We should, we should spread them all around. Um, um, and, and Madison goes so far as to say, oh, the, um, a, a law prohibiting slavery in the West is unconstitutional. That's, that's going to be what Roger Tawney is going to say in Dred Scott. That's preposterous. It's wrong. I'm a right answer person. It's wrong because the one of the first laws the Constitution, uh, excuse me, the Congress passes with George Washington's signature is a law prohibiting slavery in the territories. And James Madison spearheaded that law in 1789. And, and Thomas Jefferson was the architect of an earlier version of that law. And it's sad because as they age, they become more corrupt on this issue um, at, in the Missouri Compromise. And that story, honestly, I don't believe has been told by their biographers. And the biographers are, are, are friends of mine, the great Jack Raycove, the, um, the, my, my great student, Noah Feldman, um, uh, Lynn Cheney, in her you know, otherwise thoughtful book on, on biography of James Madison. You've had her at the National Constitution Center. But this story of how Jefferson and Madison decline, um, whereas Je Franklin and, and Washington improve, that's... The, story. the Constitution gets better. Not all of the framers do. Dear Akil, it is eight o'clock, and like all Constitution Center events, this one must end on time. I'm loath to close, as Lincoln said, but I'm. I know that we're going to reconvene many times in the coming years to discuss more aspects of this brilliant, path-breaking book, and to take its spirit to the people of the United States and inspired by your close attention to text, the Constitution Center will put online in a great national library all of the primary texts that you write about 
and fulfill the founders' hopes of serving as the national university that they thought would teach constitutional principles and the habits of civil deliberation. You have inspired me on a lifelong love of the Constitution, and with this book and your work, you inspire millions of Americans and, and citizens across the world to kindle to the principles of the Constitution and educate themselves. And you also inspire all of us to read. And dear Akil, let's the two of us continue to urge our friends to take the time to read important arguments like the ones that you make in this book so that they can spread light and grow in wisdom. And you quote the great words of uh, Brandeis, who is himself quoting Isaiah, come let us reason together uh, for allowing Americans of different perspectives to reason together, united by our shared devotion to the Constitution. Dear Akil, on behalf of the Constitution Center, thank you so much and look forward to our next conversation very soon. Thank you, friends. This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber, Lana Ulrich, and John Guerra. It was engineered by David Stotts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Again, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find out about the show and decide to tune in, so we'd really appreciate it. And as always, join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.